You'll probably notice if you looked at the scripture we're going to be reading that we're skipping a little bit. And if you want to hear about the part that we're skipping in, in Mark chapter 2, come on Thanksgiving Eve. And that is when uh, we'll be talking about that little bait and switch there for you. <laughs> As we engage where we are today in the gospel of Mark, I acknowledge a reality that we all know. We live and breathe in a world full of rules and regulations. Our day-to-day life is full of rules and laws. We have tax laws, property laws, traffic laws, laws related to marriage and family. We, in our schools, have codes of conduct, and major corporations similarly have codes of conduct and pages of policy. And this is all, in some part, due to the fact that God, when he created us, gave us laws and commandments that we should learn, follow, and obey. As we return to Mark today, you'll notice that one of these laws involved keeping the Sabbath. The Sabbath, as you may remember, directed God's people to rest from their work one day in seven. In fact, it was such a significant law that it's part of God's top ten, one of the ten commandments, God's top ten standards for living. Sabbath keeping involved setting aside a day where no work was done. That's kind of the quick snapshot, plain English version of that law. Instead of work, the focus was to be on resting, renewing, and celebrating the presence of God for an entire day. Now, as we engage that law, you're going to see two things kind of come at each other. Jesus up to now has proven to be a popular teacher, as we've heard. The crowds cannot say enough. He's proved to be a very amazing, dynamic healer as well. But last week, and even a little bit before, opposition to Jesus has begun to emerge. And today, things are going to come to a head as conflict between Jesus and the teachers of the law, in fact, reaches its breaking point. Not even before we get to, through the third chapter of Mark, we're already at the breaking point between the critics and Jesus. Through two separate but related encounters, Jesus engages the Sabbath. But as Mary Jo Settles comes up to read to us from the Gospel of Mark, you'll hear that Jesus engages the Sabbath in a very controversial way. The reading today is from Mark chapter 2, verse 23, through Mark chapter 3, verse 6. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And he answered, have you never read that day, what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Athiabar, the priest, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time he went into the synagogue And a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. 
So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Here ends the lesson for today. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Mary Jo. So the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given by God to continually remind the people of their covenant identity. That they were children. Children living in dependence upon their heavenly father. Honoring the Sabbath was so significant, so central to their identity, to our identity, that honoring the, honoring the Sabbath was reinforced again and again by the prophets in the Old Testament. And as a result, when Jesus is on the scene, Sabbath keeping had become for many serious business, including the Pharisees. And if you weren't with us last week, I tried to give a, to break the stereotype that we often have of the Pharisees. We often make them stereotypical bad guys. And the way to understand the Pharisees properly is they were the separated ones. That's what their name meant, the Pharisees. They were the separated ones. They were a biblically conservative movement of lay people who sought to follow the Torah, who sought to bring um, reform within their community, to reform the values of their community that they saw being eroded. They sincerely um, were promoting discipline. They were rigorous about it, but they were doing that in seeking to be pure before their God, to approach the problem of sin, as I described it last week, from the preventative side. And that was really their problem. It was more from the preventative side. And the Sabbath was a huge part of their focus and their concern. The Sabbath, after all, was upheld among the people as one of the main things that distinguished the Jews from their pagan neighbors. It separated the righteous from the unrighteous. So in the midst of exile, of occupation, the Babylonians or the Romans, this practice of honoring the Sabbath has sort of maintained your identity, your distinction. For the Pharisees and for others, keeping the Sabbath was a marker of civic pride, not just about devotional fervor, but there was sort of a nationalistic intensity about the, the Sabbath as a way of staying pure and staying as the people of God, not the people of Babylon or of Rome. And so in the midst of this context, here comes Jesus. This interim preacher, this miracle worker, this rabble rouser, on the move, traversing, as you heard Josh read, the countryside, he and his disciples are on their way, and as they're on their way, they get hungry. And so they decide to have a snack. They pluck a few ears of corn off a nearby stalk in a, nearby, in a, a, stalk in a nearby field, and then all of a sudden, the accusations fly. And I don't know how you read the story, but every time I read the story, I mean, again, picture it. They're walking as they are, traveling to the next place, and it's like, do the Pharisees follow everybody? It's almost like they're in the fields and all of a sudden the Pharisees whoo, like pop up in the fields. I mean, I'm serious. Were they like following along? But as they're all of a sudden eating, the Pharisees pop up and begin to accuse them of violating the Sabbath. Why? How so? 
Well, again, remember in Jesus' day, Sabbath observance had become uh, what we might call a rigorous exercise. It was sort of a regimented righteousness about it. There was a real intensity to make sure you honored and kept the Sabbath. And even though the Bible had already outlined the practice of keeping the Sabbath, in Exodus and Deuteronomy and other places, the Pharisees, with the best of intentions, decided to set up what we might call an extra firewall of preventative measures just to make sure the Sabbath was not lost, that the Sabbath was honored. So just to be safe, just to be cautious, just to prevent the splitting of hairs, because you know we like to do that, the Pharisees on their own, not by divine inspiration, they came up with 39 types of activity that you could not do on the Sabbath, one of which included reaping grain, gleaning. So what's happening is, is in picking grain in the fields, in providing food for themselves, Jesus and his disciples were working on the Sabbath. Now, not surprisingly, as you heard, Jesus sees things differently. I want you to notice something significant. Notice that Jesus doesn't deny the validity of their charge, per se. Jesus does not deny that his disciples are not in step with the traditional observance of the Sabbath. That's very important, that word, the traditional observance of the Sabbath. Instead, what you hear is Jesus argues for special consideration using a scriptural precedent from the time of David. He responds with this little story about David and his men eating bread from the temple on the Sabbath. Jesus will then continue on from this, this scriptural precedent by referring to himself as the Son of Man, proclaiming he's Lord of the Sabbath. Now, the title, the Son of Man, Jesus will use it a lot, is much debated. But I don't want you to miss what's happening here. It's very significant, this shift that takes place. Jesus is asserting his authority. If nothing else, he's just aligning himself with King David in this moment. He's basically saying that kings, by their very nature, the very nature of their office, have the right to bypass the normal regulations. So understand what's happening here. This isn't just a matter of reinterpretation by Jesus. Jesus is reinterpreting the law of the Sabbath. It's not a stalemate of one scripture reading, one interpretation over another. Well, this is what we think it means. What do you say it means, Jesus? What Jesus is saying here is he's the Lord. He's the master of the Sabbath. Jesus is saying, I'm rewriting the rules because I'm declaring I'm the author. I'm the arbiter of orthodoxy, if you will. And that's why Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath. Can you imagine what that must have been like for the Pharisees? Can you imagine hearing that when they, they base their lives on protecting the law, preventing abuse? Can you imagine what it was like for these self-appointed quality control agents for God suddenly being told, it's not your authority, it's my authority, my authority. What Jesus is saying to well-intentioned, well-intentioned leaders, spiritual leaders, is he is saying you are smothering the spirit of the Sabbath law. You are smothering the spirit of this law with additional, a stack of additional regulations that are not only unnecessary, but as this will bear out, they're also proving to be counterproductive to the intent of the law in the first place. In other words, Jesus is saying to them, the Sabbath, you've got it all wrong. The Sabbath is God's good gift to humanity. The Sabbath is not the Lord's means of oppressing his people. The point of the Sabbath was the development of a rhythm, a rhythm counter to the pace and flow of a fallen world. Hear that today, church. The Sabbath was about the development of a rhythm counter to the pace and flow of a fallen world. In a broken world, in, a, in lives that are overwhelmed by sin, 
when we operate with a mindset we save ourselves, the way we conduct our lives is we work in order to rest. In a broken world, in lives plagued by sins where we think we save ourselves, we work in order to rest. We don't rest until we've earned it. Many of us, of us have been taught that's how it is. You don't rest until you've earned it. And that's why many of us never rest. That's why so many of us, the workaholics, the perfectionists among us, burn out or fade away before we rest. We've actually reached a place in our lives, in our world, where we pride ourselves on keeping busy. We pride ourselves on being productive, even though, and we have countless testimonies within the faith and outside the faith, even though deep down we know what we're accomplishing, what we're accumulating is nothing. Nothing. Nothing that lasts. Nothing that endures. Nothing that isn't eclipsed or replaced over time. Beloved, and just a little sidebar here. I don't know if you've ever looked at it this way. Our understanding of the gospel, our understanding of the very reason that draws us here, our understanding of the good news itself is revealed through how we exercise and practice or don't the Sabbath. Because here's the thing. If we truly understand the gospel, we don't work in order to rest. We don't rest once we've earned it because we never earn it. We never can. We live by grace. And if we live by grace, then that means we rest in order to work. Living by grace is not abiding in our own strength, not in our own power and authority, but abiding in our Father's presence, His authority and power, in order to be productive, to be fruitful. And again, productive and fruitful, not in the way the world measures success, but as the kingdom values it. Now, at this point, you might think this is a sermon about the Sabbath, but it's not at all. That's an important context for us to remember about the Sabbath. But what's going on here, I hope you see this, what's going on here is about what way more than how we understand or observe the Sabbath, even though that is important. There is something bigger here that we need to see. This is not a clash about rules as much as it is a clash over who rules. This, this is, this, these are the kind of stories in the gospel, I don't know, I, I can only speak for myself, these, these keep me up at night. This, one, this is a story that haunts me. Because an encounter like this one, when I understand that it's not just about the Sabbath, but it's about who rules, this is the kind of encounter that makes me ask myself, it makes me ask as a part of the church, and I've grown up in the church all my life, it makes me ask how many of our practices, how many of our traditions are about following Jesus as much as they are about following the rules. I mean, where in our own personal walk with Christ, where in our own life as the community, as the body of Christ, as the church, where have we made following the rules an end unto themselves rather than a means to an end? And that end being the cross, the resurrection, being Jesus. Where have we added on to what the scriptures say? Where have we added on to what the scriptures say, even with, and let's be clear, the best of intentions, the best of intentions, and where have we become so much more focused on what we can't do or shouldn't do that we're emphasizing that rather than acknowledging the freedom that we've received in Christ? What aspects of our opinions, our judgments about things have become so rigid that we've twisted God's law into something it was never intended to be? These are hard, honest questions, and these are the kind of things that I think about. Maybe you don't. 
I do. And when I think about this kind of a passage, this kind of encounter, the kind of things that come to mind in the midst of these questions, and I'm treading on dangerous ground right now, provocative ground, just like Jesus, what things that come to my mind are the restrictions that we place on this table. I don't need to pick on any particular expression of Christianity, but we all have in different expressions of it restrictions that we place on this table. And, and again, with the best of intentions, even within our own church, how many people have come to me and said, you know, we really shouldn't have kids just coming up and receive communion until they have first communion, until they truly understand what's going on up there. And I want to say amen, but I also want to say, do you really understand what's going on up there? And then, you know, people, well, we've got to make sure we're prepared. We've got to make sure we prepare ourselves adequately before we come to the table. We can't just come to the table casually. We've got to make sure we prepare ourselves. And again, I will say amen, but I will also say, do you really think you can prepare yourself to come to this table? Do you really think that's something you do? We have add-ons that we've created to baptism. We've had splits in the church, families divided over in the method and mode of baptism. People literally have, will not worship together if it's sprinkling rather than dunking. We have arguments over whether it should be infants or kids when they reach a certain age where they're able to respond for themselves. And again, I'll say in the midst of it, do we really understand what's going on in baptism? And are we, are we, where, are we pulling these things specifically, explicitly out of scriptures or are we adding on because we want to make sure we get it right? Beloved, we, in, the, in the history of the church, we've created rules about dancing, drinking. Yes, I said drinking. You know, some place in the church you cannot drink. I don't know how you get past the scripture where Jesus turns water into wine. Again, the Bible's very clear on not being drunk, but as far as drinking, where'd we get that from? Dancing, you can't dance. Where'd that come from? We've, we've created all kinds of rules and regulations because of that big bad world out there engaging the culture. And be, beloved, if we really step back and look at a lot of our practices, a lot of the things that we put off on each other, it comes out of a place of fear. It comes out of a place of judgment. Judgment against that big bad world. Fear of that big bad world. These two sermons, last week and this week, really kind of dovetailed together. And I know last week was tough, so I apologize. This ain't going to be any much easier. And I want to be clear in, in talking about some other things might be coming to your mind. I want to really hit, make sure you hear this. We've created many of these rules with the best of intentions. We've created many of these rules, these traditions, out of the explicit silence of Scripture. Just like the Pharisees did. The Bible's not particularly clear, and so we're trying to get it right. We want to narrow it down with the best of intentions because the Scriptures don't necessarily address this particular situation. But notice what's going on here. Don't miss this. What's happening in this story is we find Jesus using the Bible to challenge the understanding of what others perceive the Bible to be telling them to do. And on the other side of this, not the, on the other side of where the Pharisees are, here's the thing that, that also frustrates me. It's not as if Jesus gives us the correct and final answer on everything. Does that annoy anybody else? That Jesus gets asked a question and he answers it with a question? Come on, man, just say the answer. That Jesus gets asked and he tells a story, and it's like, what's the story mean? Tell me what it means. Do you ever wonder about that? Why doesn't Jesus just come out and give us the answers that we're looking for so we don't have all these rules and regulations? You know what the reason is? I, I, I don't know if we ever think about this. Why doesn't Jesus tell us everything? Because if Jesus gave us all the answers for every scenario and just kind of laid it out, okay, here it is, here's all the rules and regulations, you know what? We wouldn't need to have discipleship, would we? 
We wouldn't need Jesus because he's given us everything we need. Jesus doesn't give us all of the things that we want because Jesus' number one desire is that we would follow him. That we wouldn't go off on our own, but that we would follow him. That drives us crazy because, man, we just, just, just tell, give me the book. And that's what we've done. We've basically side, side, sidestepped Jesus and said, well, if the Bible says that I believe it, never mind the fact that no one, everybody agrees on what the Bible says. So I'm just going to stick to what I say the Bible says, and that's what's right. And you know what? If you don't agree, well, we know where you're going. This is a means to a relationship with a person, with Jesus. This is not meant to replace our continued dependency upon him. The point in this story is that we need to follow Jesus' example of using the Bible to correct our conclusions of what the Bible tells us to do. We need to be continually in the word with Jesus. We had that phrase a couple of decades ago, what would Jesus do? We need to continue to wrestle with where is Jesus? How is Jesus reading the scriptures in our own times? How is he reading them and, and, and revealing them to us? Beloved, a way to ask this is how, have, has, how in our life today as the church has our emphasis on what we can't or shouldn't do squelched our responsiveness, our risk in terms of what we are called to do, what we are empowered to do with this Jesus we're so focused on what we're against that we're not very attentive to who we're supposed to be for. And that's what the, you'll notice is the, the focus, the, the point in the next episode here in Mark. We, we can't stay out in the fields, though it'd be nice. Things get worse for the Pharisees. I mean, maybe it wouldn't have been so bad if Jesus had only disrupted the Sabbath out in the farmer's field on the edge of town. Out there, far away from the crowds of the city, Jesus' rule-breaking could be contained, concealed, kept away from the people in the city who might be influenced by this rabble-rouser. But unfortunately, that's not what happens. Jesus and his disciples come back into Capernaum. They go back into the synagogue. And as you hear, you heard another confrontation with the Pharisees ensues. And boy, this is... This is very disturbing, what happens here. It's very disturbing. Mark tells us, so, Mark is so succinct, but there's so much here. Mark tells us that as Jesus comes into the synagogue with his disciples, he tells us that the Pharisees are watching Jesus closely. They've got their eye on him now. They're paying attention to every move he makes. And he all goes on to tell us that they're looking for a reason to accuse him. We know he's going to slip up. We know he's going to dig his own grave. We are waiting. But the part that's shocking, the part that gets me every time when it's read or when I read it, is not even that. I mean, that's bad enough. They're watching him closely. They're looking for him, for a reason to accuse him. But don't miss it. It's so subtle. But then Mark tells us that in the midst of looking at Jesus, waiting to see if they have an opportunity to accuse him, they also see a man with a shriveled hand. This isn't some new guy, people. This is someone who's a part of their community, someone whom they know. This isn't someone who knew who's arrived on the scene. They see this man with a shriveled hand. They see him. They know him. But they look right past him. They objectify him. They pay enough attention to this man in order to use him as bait to trap Jesus. Please don't miss how, how sad, how tragic this is, how horrifying. They take a flesh and blood child of God, human being, and he is an object, a means to bait and entrap Jesus. How many times have they seen this same man and thought nothing of it? And now they don't see him as a man. They see him as a snare. That if the Pharisees don't question Jesus' ability to heal, that's presumed now. The question is, 
as they use this man is will Jesus, the setup is will Jesus heal on the Sabbath? Will he do work? And, and Mark doesn't say it, but you can, it's implied. Jesus knows exactly what's going on. Jesus knows all of this and he calls their bluff. He takes their bait. Jesus is deliberately provocative here. He could have healed this man privately later, but instead he says, stand up in front of everybody. Stand up. And by the way, this is the only healing miracle that Jesus initiates without prompting. Stand up. And in a sense, when I say he does it without prompting, that's kind of not true because in some respects, I think the Pharisees do prompt this healing. The Pharisees prompt this healing through their injustice towards this man. They've treated this man like an object and this poor man who they're objectifying, Jesus stands up as an object lesson, as a revelation of the kingdom of how God cares for his children. And don't miss this because you could just hear a rebuke in all this, but don't miss the anger you heard read comes later. But in this moment, Jesus through it all attempts to teach the Pharisees. He attempts to teach the teachers of the law. He asks them. He's asking them whether it's right to save a life or to do harm, to kill. He's asking them if they've perhaps missed the point of the Sabbath law in their fixation over its restrictions. Don't miss that. In his question, he's inviting them into the purpose and joy of the Sabbath. Here it is, another foretaste of salvation. Here it is, another affirmation of the gift of forgiveness. Here it is, another manifestation of the authority and power of the kingdom. But this time, as a man stretches out his hand and is healed, there are no hallelujahs. There are no praise the Lord's. This time, there is no rejoicing. Mark tells us they remain silent. It's odd, really. A couple of months ago in the same synagogue in Capernaum, Jesus silenced an unclean spirit through his demonstration of the authority and power of the kingdom. And now he silences his critics. They're silent. They refuse to engage Jesus. They refuse to be taught. I don't know if you've sat in this, but this is, this is devastatingly ironic. The response of the Pharisees, their reaction to his question is devastatingly ironic. Think about it for a second. Think about it. In their fixation on seeing the world through rules rather than their father's eyes, the Pharisees are overlooking the very spirit of the law that they seek to protect. Please hear that. Then in their fixation on the rules, rather than looking at things through their father's eyes, they're overlooking the very spirit of the law they're seeking to protect. It doesn't dawn on the Pharisees that if Jesus' words were not in accordance with God's will, then no healing would have taken place because it's God who affects healing. They totally bypass that. They don't even acknowledge it. And what's worse is by refusing to answer Jesus, they alienate themselves. Hear that. By refusing to answer Jesus, they alienate themselves from the one who is the Lord of the Sabbath, who established the law of life in the beginning. In the beginning. But for me, what gets me, what haunts me is, is really, in a sense, through their actions, the Pharisees do give an answer to Jesus' question. In a sense, through their actions, they do give an answer to the question Jesus puts before them. And this is perhaps the most damning and tragic irony of all in this story. Given the choice between saving lives or killing, at the end of this story, they choose the latter. This story ends, don't miss it. It begins with the Pharisees seeking to protect the Sabbath law, to protect the dignity of God. And the story ends with the Pharisees in the company of the Herodians. You don't need to know much about the Herodians other than to know they were a political group whom otherwise the Pharisees would have despised. 
And yet here they are, Mark tells us, plotting against Jesus. Beloved, hear this. Those who have been hollering the loudest about the dishonoring of the Sabbath now begin to work on the Sabbath as to how they might kill the God they have been longing for and looking for their entire lives. And as you heard, it's that kind of reaction. It's the reaction of the Pharisees that's the kind of response that provokes Jesus to anger. And that doesn't happen a lot in the Gospels. We don't see Jesus angry very often. So I don't know about you, but I think we ought to pay attention. Jesus' anger here is a loving frustration. It's a loving frustration. It's the loving frustration. If any of us are parents, we know what this kind of anger, this kind of loving frustration is. Because he's asked a question and the answer is obvious. Have you ever had that with your kids? Where your kids are in the wrong and you're trying to give them an out and so you ask them a question. It's a softball, man. You know what the answer is. And the kid looks at you and says, I don't know. You do too know. No, I don't know. And you're dying, man. I'm giving you an obvious question. I'm trying to help you here. You're leaving me no choice. I'm putting it out there. And they refuse to engage the question. Jesus' anger is a loving frustration because the answer to his question is obvious. The Sabbath is about restoration and renewal. The Sabbath is about restoring the broken. It's about renewing the drained, resurrecting the dead. Healing is exactly what the Sabbath is about. Healing, health is exactly why the Sabbath was made for man. And yet, they're silent. Beloved, nothing disturbs God more. Please hear this. Nothing disturbs God more than people who choose death rather than life. Nothing disturbs God more than people who choose death rather than life. And it's that loving frustration of a parent when you see your kids doing something that they, just, they, they know better they shouldn't do and yet they sit there in the midst of doing something that is going to bring them harm and you say, don't do this. And they go, I don't know. Jesus is frustrated. He even says it. Our father laments over our hard-heartedness. And hard-heartedness is not the same thing as being cold-hearted. Hard-hearted is a lack of understanding. It's being calloused to spiritual truth. It's being so encased by moral insensitivity that it's to the point of stubbornness. And that's what I'm talking about with your kids. You've had those moments. We've all been kids, right? You know what the right answer is. You know what your parents want you to say. And your way of being stubborn is to go, I don't know. Because what do you say to that? Yes, you do. No, I don't. I don't know. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, are so encased by this stubbornness that it leads to this moral insensitivity. And beloved, this kind of pride, this kind of pride deeply distresses Jesus. And it deeply distresses Jesus because it's the kind of pride that got us into trouble in the first place. It's that kind of pride that willingly leads us to do evil rather than good. Let me re-actually say that a little bit sharper. It's the kind of pride that actually leads us to do evil in the name of doing good. The Pharisees believe that they're doing good by not violating the Sabbath, even though one of their own could be healed. They believe they're doing good, and yet they are doing good, evil, in the name of good. They believe that by planning to kill Jesus, they are doing good, but they are doing evil because they're going to kill the very Messiah who they've been waiting for. This is why this passage haunts me. I don't know about you, but I often struggle. I have to look in the mirror if I have the same challenge. 
of how easy it is for because of my pride to do evil rather than good, how often in my own life I can do evil in the name of good. I'm going to say something, and, and I know a lot of us are sick of hearing it, but it doesn't make it any less true, and it's right here. I don't write this stuff, I just preach it. It's a sad confession for us, a sad confession that we have to make, and many of us don't want to make it or are tired of making it, but it doesn't change it. It's a sad confession that the majority of the church, not all of the church, but the majority of the church since the time of Jesus has been on the wrong side of some of the major injustices of history. And I could go on, give lists, but I'll just point out three quick examples. AIDS. When AIDS came on the scene, the church had nothing to say. And then the church started speaking, and what the church had to say was not helpful. It was not helpful. In fact, it was harmful. And we're only slowly beginning to be a voice in the midst of a, an, a pandemic and what needs to happen. When I grew up and apartheid was rampant in South Africa, I grew up in a church where I never heard anything said about the, the injustice of apartheid. And despite the fact that I grew up in a country where we prided ourselves on the fact that we had abolished slavery decades, centuries ago, nothing within the church the civil rights movement, which we love to celebrate. There were specific Christians that were involved, but let's be honest about that period of time in history. The church was catching up. It was not leading the way during the civil rights movement. And again, I know many of us get really, really frustrated by this, but the truth is, and we need to look in the mirror, the mirror of the scriptures, the mirror of the gospel, the face of Jesus, that often we have turned a blind eye or worse, have raised a loud voice in protest against changing laws or even interacting with those who we deem lawbreakers. We, and I do it too. We operate on the assumption that we come to church, whatever church you go to, and everybody there lives the same way you do, believes the same thing you do, and this is part of why our conversation stay, stays pretty superficial. But just to push it, and I know for some of you, I'm going to make you really uncomfortable right now, but what if I were to say to you right now, are you aware of some gay people in our presence right now? Who are they? And immediately if they are identified, please tell me you will not look at them differently. You will not react differently to them. What if I were to say to you that we have some illegal immigrants among us today? Oh, that'll get some blood boiling. Who are they? And why would they by any means tell you? What I'm trying to say, and I know right now we're on the razor's edge here. I know many of us have political and social views, and we should. But regardless of what those views are, and it's not, my, it's not my job for me to sort those out. There's good arguments and bad arguments on both sides. And there's also, like I said, there's good arguments and there's bad arguments on both sides. The point is, what this passage is drawing out is regardless of our political or social views, if we are disciples of Jesus, then we have to follow, we have to go where he is. We must engage the people that Jesus seeks after. And who are those? The Bible is clear, it's the least of these. It's the oppressed, it's the marginalized, it's the suffering, it's the alienated, and it's the outsiders. And those people are often the same, but they can change. And beloved, my argument that I will make to you is for the majority of the church, we're not spending time with the least of these, we're perpetuating drawing the lines that keep them on the outside, that continue to make them marginalized, that continue to make them alienated. We're leading that charge, and that's not the charge that Jesus is leading. We tend to stress the rules, the standards, the norms. You've become a Christian. We continue to tell you when you give your life to Christ all the things you have to give up. Well, you can't do these things anymore. You need to talk like this. You need to act like this. You need to start being like a Christian. 
I'm serious, this is our narrative. Very rarely when we call someone to Christ do we tell them all the things they get to do. All the power and authority they've been given. All the places they can go without fear. All the people they encounter. No, we operate like the Pharisees from a preventive side. We turn the least of these in our world into caricatures, stereotypes. We're all guilty of this in the church. If I say homeless person, we all know the stereotype for a homeless person, even though they're in our own community. They don't, they don't, they're dirty, they smell. And, you know, basically they could get a job if they really wanted to, but they're just sucking off the tea to the government. They could get help if they wanted to. Many of us will not say that publicly, but that's the predominant opinion that I hear within the church, within our own church as we struggle with those who are needy coming into our community. We have our own stereotypical views about illegal immigrants. They don't deserve to be, they're stealing from us. They're all these different things, and yet we forget in our own history, and I know things are different, that many of us came from immigrants who came to this country. We have our stereotypes about people who are gay. The minute that someone is identified as gay, I watch this every time. Our orientation as Christians changes. Might I go so far to say that like the Pharisees, we begin to watch them closely. We begin to watch them closely to see if they're going to do anything that crosses a line because if they cross that line, they need to know that's not acceptable. How about people on welfare in the midst of the things that are going on? I mean, again, I've been shocked in some company that I've kept of people talking about people on welfare. And again, I know there are political arguments and social arguments, but here's the point. We are objectifying the least of these like the Pharisees. We are using the stereotype of them to make a point. We are using the stereotype of many of these, these types of people as a litmus test of our assessment of others. And what we're failing to see, what this passage is about, the tragic irony is like the Pharisees, we fail to see that how we treat others, regardless of who or what they are, is in fact the litmus test of our discipleship. How close are we to Jesus? How close are we following Jesus? As I said last week, is reflected by the company we keep. Beloved, let me put it just this simple. If Jesus were here today, who do you think he'd be hanging out with? Who do you think he'd be hanging out with? And anybody who wants to tell me, you don't think he'd be hanging out with the very people that I've just named who we have issues with, let's read the Bible together. Jesus hangs out with all the wrong people in his day and age. And I mean all the wrong people, politically, socially, and so forth. The real issue that Jesus raises here in his question is this. Is our father, the father we, we pray to, is our father for life or is our father for death? Is honoring God, if that's what we seek to do, as much about adhering to the letter of the law or is it about our responsibility to care for one another? Beloved, the law by itself is not enough. Many of us who've grown up in the church who went through catechism know this. We know the law is not enough. We, we, we know that the law can tell us what's wrong, but we know that the law cannot, cannot lead us in being right with God, and it cannot lead us in doing what is right by God. Many of us have grown up memorizing this truth. Many of us get hot and heavy and say, it's not works, the law doesn't save us, we're saved by grace. We stress this in our own salvation, that the law is not enough, and yet we fail to apply the same standard in our treatment of each other. Why? The reason why the law by itself isn't adequate is because the law isn't detailed enough. We all know this, life is more complicated than the law, am I right? There's more gray out there than black and white, and that drives some of us crazy. There's more gray out there than there is black and white. Situations arise in which the application of the law isn't clear. 
The book of Hebrews describes God's law as a shadow of good things, not the very image. And that's why we need interpretation. And that interpretation of the law is not something that we do on our own. That's why we need Jesus. Jesus is our interpreter of the law. That's why Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. Don't throw it out. And I'm not throwing out the law this morning. Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law. We follow Jesus so that we can fulfill the law in our own lives. And how do we do that? What is that Jesus gives us the details that we need to fulfill the law. He doesn't give us all the answers, but Jesus gives us the one thing we need to fulfill the law. As we pay attention here in Mark and throughout the rest of the gospel, you're going to see people throwing the law at Jesus. And you're going to see Jesus trying to balance the various standards of the law as they test him, as they set him up. And what we're going to see again and again is one overriding governing principle for how to fulfill the law, how Christ fulfills it and how in following him we fulfill it. And it's a word, one word. You know what it is? Love. Love. Love governs the exercise of the law in our lives. Love is the overriding principle. So much so that Paul will later write to a church that's very much caught up in rules and regulations and boundaries and crossing them. You can have everything, but if you don't have love, you've got nothing. You can have it all, but if you don't have the love of Christ, you've got nothing. Love is the exercise of the law in our lives. And the love that Jesus is talking about, as we'll hear, is not just a feeling. It's not just an emotional connection. Jesus' definition of love that we work with is love that has in mind, heart, and soul the best interest of those being loved, both physically and spiritually. Last week I told you that the encounter Jesus had was in many ways the parable of the prodigal son lived out in real time. Right here in the synagogue, in some ways, this is the parable of the Good Samaritan being lived out in real time. Following Jesus is not about what's not allowed as much as it is about doing what helps or not doing what hinders another person in need. When you have the opportunity to do good for someone, I think all of us know this by common sense, but I don't know if we live by it. When you have the opportunity to do good for someone, you don't have to stop and ask yourself, hmm, is this lawful? Is this allowed? And even if you were to stop, Jesus has done us the great favor of summing up all the commandments and all the law with this one rule. If you're a rule person, Jesus says, don't stress. Let me summarize it all for you. And it's this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And, and you cannot separate it. The two are inseparably linked. Loving God by loving your neighbor as yourself. In other words, beloved, and if you hear nothing else, hear this this morning. It is always lawful to do good. It is always lawful to do good. We have new mission statement, new vision statement, values, and I would point them out to you that that's why you see as part of our vision statement that we don't just serve, because a lot of times we can serve without love, we lovingly serve. Lovingly serve means we risk. We're willing to serve where Jesus is, not just where we're willing to go. You will see that we, everyone is a child of God. That's one of our values, living out that understanding that love is what guides us, that we're called to serve one another, even if we're different, even if we don't agree on things. And last but certainly not least in this that highlights what I'm preaching is love is the highest law. If we're not speaking the truth in love, then we're not speaking the truth of the gospel. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, the scriptures proclaim. Therefore, we will not separate anyone from God's love. The Pharisees, we're not alone in this. If you're feeling beat down right now, understand that those who came before Jesus, the, the community of faith struggled with this too. That's why the prophets repeatedly had to hold up to them 
that doing good is not just about rituals and traditions. God said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. God said, if you want to do good, Micah 6, 8, act justly and love mercy. What God is saying repeatedly to them and to us is human need always trumps our ritual formalities. And that's why going back to the text, that's why for Jesus, satisfying hunger is an appropriate Sabbath practice. Restoring a hand to health is the right thing to do on the Sabbath. Doing good and saving life are especially important on the Sabbath. They're the kind of work that never ceases. We never take a rest from doing good or saving lives because doing good and saving lives is what the Sabbath is all about. But as I said, this is about more than the Sabbath. This is about discipleship. If we would seek to follow this Jesus, if you want to know the line between being a Christian and being a disciple, a Christian knows what the rules are, the boundaries. A disciple says, I'm not so much worried about that as I am, I want to be where he is. I want to go where he goes. And Jesus didn't come to commemorate the Sabbath or any law. Jesus came to fulfill the Sabbath and that fulfillment of the Sabbath and the law came through saving our lives. And that means that our fulfillment of that law in our own lives is partnering with Jesus, being vessels of his salvation to those who do not know and have not heard, wherever and whoever they might be. We can and should alleviate suffering at any time, not just particular times or days. Choosing to save or restore life over death is always the right choice. Because here's the thing, when you separate love from the law, you get legalism. And when you separate love from the law and you get legalism, make no mistake, you have a different religion. When the rule matters more than the reality, then we begin to refrain from doing good. And when we refrain from doing good, we are abetting evil. <laughs> I saved the best for last. That's the other thing that's striking in this passage. The Pharisees, what's so horrific, why Jesus gets frustrated. You would think, well, they, don't, they, just, they just remain silent. Understand the deeper message. When we refrain from doing good, we are abetting evil. When we choose not to do good, when we choose to turn a blind eye or look the other way, we are abetting committing evil. That is hard for me to hear. I don't know about you. And that's why I need Jesus that's why I need to be on my knees, hanging on his every word, following him, because I know I'm want to do that. I know I am want to avoid doing good because I make it all about me. But if I follow Jesus, if I do what he does, if I do what he tells me to do, if I follow him and use his words, then I am doing good. He is doing good through me. Beloved, evil is always prohibited regardless of the day of the week. And goodness is always required regardless of the day of the week. We're not even three chapters in, and one thing that we're beginning to notice about Jesus is that as the promised Messiah, as the long-awaited Savior of the world, he's an agent of change. Then the change that Jesus brings is what he told us at the beginning, the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, God's reign, his rule. What Jesus is doing, see this as disciples, is Jesus is demonstrating for us the way things ought to be, the way things were intended to be. And I might even go so far to say that Jesus isn't just demonstrating them, He's remaking everything. If you know this Jesus, if you're following him and you're feeling like your life is getting turned upside down, that you're getting turned inside out, that's not the wrong place to be. That's the right place to be. Because Jesus is making all things new. And so as we go on through Mark, we're going to see Jesus continually crossing boundaries. We're going to see Jesus repeatedly unsettling the status quo. We're going to see Jesus again and again redefining the rules through the lens of God our Father's love. 
And that law of love means first do no harm. And in closing, this is what I want to ask. In a world in which the predominant opinion of us, whether we like it or not, whether we agree with it or not, in a world in which the predominant opinion of us as Christians is that we are judgmental and hypocritical, what difference might it actually make if we followed Jesus? Because here's the thing, I don't know if you've ever thought about it, for all the things that the world will throw at us as the church, and many of it rightly deserved, and we get all hot and bothered, that's not true, we're not hypocritical, we're not, this is, we're persecuted, we don't, you don't know all the good stuff we do, let's tell you about the people who did great stuff, we need to defend ourselves. Maybe instead of defending ourselves, what if we follow Jesus? Because here's the thing, here's the thing that's shocking, is that for all the things that the world throughout time has thrown at the church, has thrown at Christians, none of those charges have ever been applied to Jesus. The world has never said that about Jesus. They have never seen that in Jesus. So instead of us getting our better defense or our argument or our coming up with our case of how everybody else is wrong, what if we just simply followed the one to whom no charge will stick? What if we just simply said, hey, it's not about us, it's about him? What would happen? Beloved, let's forsake and it's easy, the temptation to be religious watchdogs. We don't, God does not need us to be religious watchdogs. Some of you really need to hear that because some of you are convinced that is your God-given appointment. God doesn't need you to be his watchdog. He's got angels in heaven he can throw down. Your bite is not anywhere near what he can bring down if he needs to. Let's avoid the temptation to be religious watchdogs and instead let's answer the call to be disciples of Jesus. Let's not follow the rules as much as we seek to follow Jesus. And that doesn't mean break the rules, but let's not fo let following the rules trump following Jesus since he's the one who writes them. Let's reject our inclination, and I have it just like you. Let's reject our inclination towards creating technicalities and roadblocks that enable us to box others in even as they allow us to avoid personal accountability. Let's stop playing games, church. And instead, let's follow Jesus. And let's remember that if we are going to follow Jesus, if that's who, what we say we're about, following Jesus means our commitment to the law never trumps our commitment to life. It is always lawful to do good. May we never forget that saving life is the kind of work that never needs a Sabbath. Let us see clearly not only what is before us, but who is before us. The Lord of the Sabbath the Lord of life. And beloved, if we see him and if he's before us and we're following him, let's notice who's with him. We might be surprised. And then let us begin to see each person that our eyes are open to. Not look past them, but let's see each person apart from the rules and patterns that we have allowed ourselves to fall victim to. Let's see each person apart from the boundaries we've set about what we will or will not do. And instead, let's follow Jesus as he changes our rules. That's right, as he changes our rules. Let's follow Jesus as he crosses our boundaries. And let us recognize through Jesus what ought to be obvious. I'm saying this to me. I'm not even saying it to you. What ought to be obvious? Let's recognize through Jesus what ought to be obvious. The hungry should always be fed. The disabled should always be restored. And love should always be shared. Amen?